God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey everyone, this is Jason. I just want to come on and say a quick word of thanks to the following people. Angie Hornbuckle, Bo Hoffman, Bill Carr, Bruce Porter, Seth Price, Danielle Nagel, Eric Howell, Glenn Seipert, Joshua Lawson, Kaylin D'Elia, Carrie Pruitt, Kim Johnson, Kyle Butler, Steve Austin, Tiffany Wright, Tim Nixon, William Alomar. These are our superstar patrons over on Patreon that help make this podcast happen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We could not do what we do without you. You help us pay the bills, keep all the expenses covered to keep this podcast going, and you help me dedicate time towards writing and being a creative force. So thank you so much for allowing me to do what I do. I couldn't do it without you. If you have not become a patron yet on Patreon, please go to patreon.com slash Jason Elam writes and sign up today. You can sign up for as little as $1 a month and you get some perks in exchange for your support. Thank you so much. Now on to this week's episode. Keith Giles is the author of the incredible Jesus Trilogy, Jesus Untangled, Jesus Unbound, and Jesus Unveiled. He blogs for Patheos. He is a co-host of the insanely popular Heretic Happy Hour podcast, and he was our very first guest here, and it's my pleasure to welcome him back to the Messy Spirituality Podcast today. Welcome back, Keith Giles. Oh my gosh, Jason, thank you so much for having me back, and yeah, I'm excited. Let's let's uh, We have some good things to talk about today. Yeah, we do. Hey, up until this point, we've largely focused here on deconstruction stories, where people come and share the unraveling of their faith, what shifted and what came apart completely. I'm kind of feeling a direction to go with a new focus, starting on talking more about what happens after it all falls apart and when we start building something new. So I wanted to have you back on to discuss the shifts that took place in your own life when it comes to the church. You were on the paid staff of an evangelical church and then started feeling led in a different direction. Can you tell me about that season of your life? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this was um, like probably like 14, 15 years ago. Yeah, my wife, Wendy, and I, we were on staff at a vineyard church in Southern California, and it was when we had helped to start with some other friends of ours. We did that for about three, three and a half years and loved it. I mean, for the most part, really loved it. But <clears throat> what happened was during that time, what, one thing we were doing was doing ministry to the poor in the community and as well as children's ministry. And we were really loving, uh, especially the ministry to the poor in the community and um, feeling called in that direction. And then I think sort of two things happened about the same time. I had this radical uh, shift in my understanding and I, I suddenly realized that the gospel wasn't about saying a prayer so I could go to heaven when I die. And that, that actually what the gospel was, was actually more about in the good news of the kingdom, which is what Jesus talked about all the time, which is the gospel, is about, you know, basically entering the kingdom of God, living in the kingdom of God right now, and following Jesus in your actual life. So when I made that shift, that was the biggest shift. And so soon after that, Wendy and I started feeling called to start a new, to leave that church and start another church. And we felt like, like God was saying it was a church that would give everything away to the poor in the community. And we were excited about that. And then but the only way to do that was to basically meet in homes and for me to get a real job somewhere else, you know, in the real world. And we did that. And we did that for 11 years. And it was amazing. Yeah, that, that was sort of the beginning. I think, again, that, that, that the first thing was the recognition that the gospel wasn't about saying a prayer so I can go to heaven when I die. And then that second shift was making the break from sort of church as, as we knew it 
into church as something a little more radical, a little more sort of first century New Testament style. Was there a moment when you just started to feel like, hey, the way we're doing this feels wrong? Or was that something that happened all at once or did that happen over a long season for you? Here's the thing about being on staff at a church, and, and you probably know this. Anybody who's been on staff or been a pastor at a church, you see things, you're aware of things sort of behind the scenes that the average person in the pew just doesn't see and isn't aware of. And so staff meetings on Monday morning uh, with the church or um, looking at the giving statements and where the money was going and how it was being spent and just sort of the the mindset of our, our, the, the senior pastor and, and the idea of like the priority being putting more butts in the seats, getting more people to give, getting sort of the, you know, the young entrepreneur, <laughs> you know, family that just came into the into the church to visit, to get, you know, kind of recruit them quickly to get them plugged in and locked in and all that. Like all those things to me just felt wrong and just felt like, what are we doing here? Like, this doesn't feel at all like what Jesus called us to do. So yeah, Wendy and I did, did start to feel like, I think that's probably what's pushed us into the, the, the direction of, of praying about maybe we should leave and start a church of our own because we, there were so many things we felt like, gosh, we're not comfortable with this. And it, if, if we could, we would want to do a church a different way. So yeah, there, there were just those kinds of things where we're like, yeah, I'm not sure this is what Jesus really had in mind. In this age of highly produced, perfectly timed Sunday morning programs held in multi-purpose mega churches around the world, I think it's important to ask, what did Jesus mean? when he talked about church? And how is that different than how we use the word today? Oh, wow. That is a great question. Well, it's it's radically different. I mean, yeah, the way we do church today, it really is more of a, it's a sermon and a song. It's a, way more about sort of a production, a performance, if you will. And so you have uh, people on a stage and you have people in an audience that are, you know, the, the, the majority of the church is, uh, are spectators and they're watching a handful of people sort of use their giftings if it's and, and those only giftings that they're being um, put up front and honored or the gift, gifts of teaching or maybe leading in worship or something like that. And uh, not that, the, and again, I, those are important gifts. We need those, but it's sort of, it's a very partial idea of really the full picture of what we see as the ecclesia, which is what the word, the word really that's used when Jesus talks about, in our English Bibles, we have the word church, but the word really is ecclesia. And ecclesia is really just a common word, a Greek word for a gathering or an assembly of, of people. But the way, so when Jesus talks about it, for example, you know, he, uh, there's two different times when he speaks to the disciples. One time he points to a secular hierarchy. He says, look at the uh, leaders of the Gentiles, how they lord it over people. And he says, not so with you. And then there's another place where he met, he talks to the disciples and he points to the religious hierarchy, the Jewish leaders. And he says, you know, how the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, how they lorded over people. And, and again, he says, not so with you. And that's where he says, you know, call no man father because you have one father. Call no, do, not, do not call one another rabbi or let, don't let anyone call you rabbi because you have one teacher. And again, the implication being that your father is God, your teacher is the Holy Spirit. Like the, we shouldn't elevate one another to those post, to those levels. And Jesus' point is that you are all brothers and sisters. In other words, you are all equal. So that that by right there is very very different from the way we experience church today. And then Paul, Paul the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians, uh, especially chapter twelve through fourteen, that's where he unpacks really I think more specifically what the early church was about, which is this where we even get the idea that even even the concept of calling a church a body 
And I think we we use that word today in a way that Paul wouldn't have recognized it. Because if Paul looked at the way we were doing church today, he would not look at what we're doing and call that a body. Because the way Paul describes a body, Christ is the only head, not one of us. And we are all equally gifted. We all have unique gifts. We're all necessary. We all we all matter. Uh, we're all essential to the health and growth of the body as we are using these individual gifts we've been given by the Holy Spirit under the direction of the head, who is Christ, to build one another up and bless one another and serve one another. All these 58 one another's mentioned in the New Testament, by the way. I mean, that's ecclesia. Ecclesia is the is behaving as a body under the headship of Christ empowered organs and members of the body who are members of one another ministering to in other words we are doing the ministry to one another we're not just receiving ministry we're we are ministers ourselves we are priesthood we're members of the priesthood of all believers we're practicing these 58 one another statements that are in the new testament church as we know it today pretty much makes all of that the practice of all of those things impossible and so yeah there's a radical radical shift there We've added costly programs and positions, denominational and internal hierarchy, membership requirements, statements of faith, often manipulative offerings and altar calls and the like. And it feels like we've at the same time lost so much of the awe and expectancy that seem to be characteristic of the early church. What has our fascination with church politics and power cost us as the church? I hate to be an alarmist, but in some ways I feel like it's cost us everything. I feel like we've lost Jesus in this mix. We've lost the power of the gospel. I think this is honestly why the church in today's culture is perceived as being so irrelevant. In other words, Jesus set in motion and set a vision for an ecclesia that was others-focused. In other words, that's one of the most powerful things when you study the early church that you see is how the early Christians— and we see it even in the in the New Testament, right? They, they would they would take the, the people would sell their property, they would lay it at the lay it at the feet of the apostles, uh, not for distribution, you know, to to enrich the church or the apostles, but to care for orphans and widows, and you know, to care for people even outside of the the church. And so, and that was one of the most radical things. I mean, if you study early church history, it was the incredible radical compassion and love that the early church had for people outside their own faith that was a was powerful was so instrumental in the growth of the church even more so than miracles or anything else was like you know there, there's an amazing statement from one of the i think first century pagan leaders who said something like t- talking about the christians he says they bury they they bury our dead as well meaning they they're using their money to bury people the, the dead who aren't even you know, Christians, like, and, and they were in awe. They were shocked. Like, why? Why would they be so loving, so giving? So I think our focus on politics and power has sort of shifted our, it's distracted us from our, our true identity and calling and purpose. And I would love for us to get back to that. I think, I think really that's what people expect. You know, I think when people, some of them inside the church and some of them outside of the church, but they look at the Christian church and they say, you don't look a lot like Jesus. You know, when I, when I look at Jesus, I see one thing. And, and Jesus seems to be very loving and giving and forgiving, and he's a servant, right? And all these beautiful things. And yet when I look at the church, what I see is power and control and prestige and, and all of those things. And that doesn't look a lot like Jesus. Right. You know, Keith, over the years, I've certainly taken church leadership to task for the many shortcomings of the modern church. But it seems like in many ways, pastors and leaders and their families pay a heavy price for our obsession with success and constant growth. 
Uh, I'm thinking about the way we just lost Jared Wilson this week to suicide, mm. and he's not the mm. first. No. What is that costing those we've tasked with leadership to have to be constantly focused on success and growth in this modern church era? Yeah. So, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I, honestly, that was one of the first things I I, I thought about when I, I saw the news about Jared Wilson. And because again, I, I, I'm not saying at all, please, I want to make sure I just say this up front. I'm not saying at all that this sort of the modern sort of uh, pastoral le- success leadership model in itself was the cause of what Jared went through. I think it was a factor. I really do think it was a factor. But I, obviously, Jared was struggling with a lot with depression and anxiety. And I'm sure I know, I mean, it was fighting in every way he knew to fight against those things. You know, it just unfortunately, you know, he fought until he couldn't. And it, it's heartbreaking. But But at the same time, having been where he's been, and knowing many other people who are uh, in that sort of still in that pastoral position, yeah, it takes a toll. It takes a toll on you emotionally, physically, spiritually. Uh, it, it, it's damaging to your family. There's this, there's this really toxic idea that still persists among people in ministry that you have to sort of, you know, Jesus says you have to love me. You have to just, you know, love me more than your own family. And so you have to put Jesus first, even ahead of your family. And, and, and usually what that is code for is, sorry, kids, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be around for you because I'm too busy being, you know, ultimate super pastor for all these other people, you know, who aren't my family. And so sorry, so, you know, sorry to my wife, sorry to my children. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be unavailable because the, I'm giving my best uh, away to, to other people. And again, that in itself, again, we sure we want to serve people. Absolutely. We want to be servants, but what, what I want to put my finger on and, and highlight here is what's damaging about that is that it's one or two people in a, in a, in a church who are doing that while the rest sit and are spectators. Again, if we go to 1 Corinthians 12, what we see is that Christ is the head and that the rest of us, it says it says actually that the Spirit gives gifts to all of us, not to one or two people to do the ministry. And that's what's screwed up about it. So when you have only one or two people trying to carry on their shoulders the weight of the entire ministry of the church that's intended to be distributed equally across everyone in the church, well, of course, now that's unrealistic that one or two people can carry, you know, that burden on themselves and they can't and Jesus doesn't intend for them to. But because they are trying to do that, because that's the model we've adopted, it just crushes people and it's destructive. It's dangerous. And it's like, if we really love pastors, <laughs> we, we should move more into this model of, again, the 58 one another's and the priesthood of all believers where we're doing our share. We're We're helping to carry that enormous weight of ministry that is not meant to be carried by just one or two people. Absolutely. I know that there, there's not a pastor in ministry that I've ever known in 20-something years of local church work that wasn't in it for the right reasons. I mean, every single one of them really wanted to serve God and God's people. Yep. The problem is the expectations are so high and it's so isolating, and life in the fishbowl wreaks havoc on the leader and the leader's family and ultimately the church itself. And and we just disintegrate, and we don't feel like we have anybody we can talk to until it all falls apart and everybody knows anyway. Right. And at that point, it's too late. Um, I know in my own life, it was ego. I didn't want anybody to know I couldn't handle it because I thought other people could. But it feels like the reality is no one, no one leader or team of leaders 
was ever meant to handle the burden of ministry alone. No. And, and, and body life is so liberating mm-hmm. compared to life in that fishbowl. Keith, let me ask you this. Are we too far gone? Is there a way back to the initial blueprint of the church from where we are now? And if so, how do we get there? Yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely, we can still get there. I mean, the the template is still there. We can still see the model right in front of us. Uh, we have, we still have the First Corinthians, and we have Acts, and we have the early church history, and we have the teachings of Jesus, and so we can we we have guides for us to go look, go back and look and see. This is the way it was done. Because here's the ironic thing, and I, I actually heard this out of the mouth of many pastors that I served on staff with for many years, that where they would they would in a staff meeting or even privately in a meeting with, you know, uh, with, with the pastors would say, you know what, I want our church to be like the church that we see in, in the second chapter of Acts, right? This church that's giving and spontaneously just loving one another and, and sharing what they have among one another. And it's like, yes, I, I get it. I, I know you want that, but, but here's the thing. And I, it shouldn't be, this shouldn't be a radical statement. If you want what they had, you have to do what they did. And it seems that's the line is like, well, no, we want what they have, but we don't want to do what they did. We want to keep this model that we have where there's still this hierarchical structure. And there's, again, there's, there's a senior pastor who, and then there's a staff and there's a budgets and buildings and all these kind of things. Well, unfortunately, the early church didn't have any of those things. And so <laughs> until you get rid of those things, until you're willing to sort of lay those things down and lay those at the foot of the cross and go back to a more, to a simpler model where it's just basically Jesus. Jesus is the only head of the church. I mean, I know it's possible because I did it. I did it for, you know, my wife, Wendy, and I and our, our family. We, we did this for 11 years in our, in our home and other homes in Southern California. And it was the best thing I have ever done with the word church on it. I mean, like you said, it's so, body life is so freeing. And we, and we actually saw firsthand how this model, how it lifted people up, how it, allowed them to step into their calling and allowed them to recognize their their spiritual gifting and learn how to actually use it to be a, uh, an effective contributor to the to the body of Christ and you know this discipleship model it really is discipleship i think again it redefined where it's not this top down thing where oh i'm i've got this experience come sit at my feet and let me teach you something no you know everyone is being discipled by everybody else and we're also discipling one another. It's a, it's an ongoing, constant thing. So I'm discipling you, but you're discipling me, and we're all discipling one another. And so we are disciples who are being discipled, who are making disciples, who are making disciples. And again, it's absolutely possible, but only if you're willing to sort of make that shift and 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 to sort of do church in a different way. Yeah, I, I know that back in 2006, we— got together with some friends just at a local coffee house. And back then we were calling it Organic Church, named after Neil Cole's book. And it was the, it was just transparent. It was, it was just awesome. You know, nobody was in charge. It was just like the Holy Spirit just orchestrated the whole thing. It, like you said, it was the best thing that I've ever been a part of with the name church attached to it. But I think the temptation for me was, well, most of the culture of the Bible Belt is never going to understand this or feel comfortable participating in it. And so then we go back to the church building and we go back to the Sunday morning services and we lose all of that. How do we maintain relevance in a culture that doesn't understand transparency, but not lose transparency? Well, I guess I, I'm curious, who are we talking to? <laughs> because 
I, I mean, the thing, the things you and I are talking about, Jason, I mean, you really can only have them if you want them. Like people have to read, be hungry for this. They have to be desperate for this. This ha- there has to be something in them is like this itch that is not being scratched any other way in, in sort of traditional forms of church that they've been raised in to the point that they are seeking this out. They are ready to pay whatever the, the price may be to give up anything they have to give up to experience this kind of thing that you and I are talking about. Because if, but until they're at that point, until they are hungry for it and desperate for it and wanting it and seeking it out, you know, I, you and I are never going to convince traditional church that they they should just drop everything and, and do something different. Because again, to them and for, for many people in that sort of traditional hierarchical church that we were raised in, for many of them, it isn't broken. So they're not looking for anyone to fix it. It works fine for them until it doesn't. All right. And so, again, I think it's something where you have to be desiring it. You have to be wanting it. But if, but then if you are, the good news is, well, no, you can totally, it's totally doable. Many people come to the realization that something is very wrong in the modern church and then end up going through a painful and sometimes traumatic deconstruction period, only to end up walking away from their faith altogether. Is it possible to deconstruct and then come through that with some sort of faith intact? Well, I hope so, man, because <laughs> that's what I've been going through for the last, you know, 15 years or so. No, it is possible. But at the same time, you're exactly right, because I, I do know, I have friends, I know people who started their deconstruction process. You know, each person kind of has started maybe deconstructing with something different. Some people have started deconstructing church, the way we're talking about, or they're just, they start by deconstructing maybe the Bible, uh, realizing the Bible isn't what they thought it was, or they deconstruct hell and maybe hell isn't what they told they were told it was or whatever. So, but once they start pulling on those threads, yeah, sometimes unfortunately they I've seen people deconstruct themselves completely out of the faith. And I think, and, and I'll be honest too, I nearly went there myself. Uh, I had I had a moment a few years ago as I was deconstructing where I nearly, I mean, I was standing on the edge like I don't know, you know, I'm, I was asking some questions and had come to a place where I was like, oh my gosh, uh, am I about to lose? my faith. And for for me, I was very blessed in that uh, my wife, Wendy, first of all, I process everything verbally. So I'm always, if I'm reading something or thinking about something, I'm all, I sit down with Wendy and I talk about it. You know, I go, I'll read it to her or I'll we'll process it verbally and she'll help me walk through it. And so uh, I'm just very blessed that Wendy was there and she helped me really, you know, patiently and lovingly and carefully think through it and kind of pulled me back like, okay, yeah, all right, here's where I am. But unfortunately, not everybody has someone in their life like that who can kind of walk them through it. And then the other thing I found is, I think it depends on what your faith is in. So if, in other words, the people that I've seen who have deconstructed out of the faith, I think the realization that they've had is that, oh my gosh, I my faith was in escaping hell. And once I realized hell wasn't some eternal suffering thing, well, that's why am I here? Or my faith was in the Bible. And if the Bible isn't 100% accurate and true and perfect in every way, well, then I can't believe anything. In other words, their faith was in that book. Their faith was in a doctrine or their faith was in maybe even in church or what have you. If if your faith is primarily in one of these things that you're deconstructing, and then when that's removed, well, then yeah, you're left with nothing. For me, I've deconstructed probably everything, or at least so far, almost everything that I thought I believed. But the one thing I can't let go of is Jesus. I think as long as you continue to hang on to Christ, 
you're okay. Every, all, because, because again, I think at the end of the day, what we have to realize is those other things are man-made. Those other things are things we came up with. And many of them are aberrations. They're things that Jesus didn't even want or intend in the first place. And so it's probably good to deconstruct those things, but to hang on to Jesus. And I think if you let go of, of Christ, that's the thing for me anyway, that I can't let go of. Uh, are there some essential elements of reconstruction or the things that we need to keep in mind as we start to rebuild a faith? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I've been doing a whole lot of thinking about reconstruction lately because I've been noticing that there's there's all kinds of stuff out there for deconstruction, but not very much on reconstruction. So, yeah, as I've been thinking about it, I mean, I, I think I've found four, there may be more, and, and these aren't, you know, nothing's in stone yet. But as I'm looking at this idea, I think one of them is we sort of have to have, as we're, as we're trying to find a way to reconstruct faith, I think we have to, um, we have to have a new perspective on faith. In other words, if faith isn't about these sort of structures and these doctrines, things that are more about fear and control, well, then what is my faith? What, sh- what should it be about? And I think that one of the main things we have to recognize is it's not about being right. That's, that, I think, is one of the, the, the biggest problems with the faith that we are in the process of deconstructing is this idea that, because you know, again, I think church in America has made Christianity about having the right information about God. And it's not. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not information. It's transformation. And so as we're deconstructing that and we're beginning to think about reconstruction, we have to let go of this idea of being right or the, or the whole idea of right or wrong. Am I right or am I wrong? Or, you know, am I, am I accurate or am I factual? Like we have to sort of be willing to, to hold loosely to that and focus more on the, that experiential part of it. The second thing I believe is rewiring our brains. Uh, because again, if you're like me, you're raised in the church, uh, grew up in the church, you spent many years in, in traditional church structures, being sort of indoctrinated by those kinds of uh, ideas and doctrines and things like that. There's, those create grooves in your brain, and they really do. And so even if you've deconstructed the belief system, what, you, what you'll find is those grooves are still there. You still tend to fall back on those ways of thinking, even subconsciously or unconsciously. You don't mean to, but you haven't replaced those grooves or you haven't created new grooves in your brain that go another direction. So it really is sort of like the good news is our brains have a plasticity. And so we really can, if we recognize, hey, this is a groove that was created by somebody else who used it to control me and manipulate me. All right, I'm going to abandon that. But then I can't just abandon it. I have to create something new that goes another direction that is more positive, that leads me to life and freedom and hope and joy and all these things. And so, yes, we, we have to find a way to, to rewire our brains to lead us in more of that direction. And part of that, well, a big, big piece of that, and this may even be the biggest piece, is forgiveness. Because here's the other thing. When you're going through your deconstruction process, anyone who's gone through it knows exactly what I'm saying. You begin, as you begin to question your faith, you start losing fellowship, right? People in your church start calling you heretic or, or distancing themselves from you because you no, you no longer believe or support the things that their church does. Um, so you lose friendships, sometimes really, really good friends just say, you know what? I can't go with you anymore. I can't go, go with you there. Uh, so you lose those relationships and sometimes we lose family members. And so all of that is extremely painful. In other words, there's an emotional aspect. There's a, there's a grief that we experience, not just deconstructing our belief systems, but losing relationships that mean the world to us. And that's extremely painful. What I've noticed is people going through deconstruction, you cannot go to reconstruction. You you cannot start that process of reconstruction until you have dealt with the grief and the pain and 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 
learn to forgive and, and let go of that, those people that wounded you, that harmed you, and those relationships that have been damaged. So forgiveness is a huge part of reconstruction. And finally, and this is probably the, the reconstruction process itself, like once you actually get into reconstruction, I think what it's about is developing new faith practices. This is connected to the rewiring your brain thing, but it's more about how, how so again, if we're not going to go to a church every Sunday morning and sit through a sermon and a song and let somebody else tell us what to think and believe, well, then what is my faith? Well, how do I practice my faith and my connection to God and to Christ? Well, then we're going to have to, again, create some new practices of faith that are more focused on um, not information, but transformation. And what does that look like? So those are sort of the, I think, the four, to me anyway, at this point, the four essential elements of reconstruction and, and, how, how do we recognize this, make changes, and move on into something that looks like reconstruction? Well, I'll tell you, Keith, there's nobody that I trust more than you to help people successfully navigate the rocky road of deconstruction and build something meaningful in the aftermath. I, I've been encouraged to see Greg Boyd and Brad Jerzak and others uh, recommending your new course, Back to Square One. Can you tell us about that, what it is, and why you're doing it? Yeah, and thank you so much, Jason. I, uh, that means a lot to me. Yeah, so I'm, uh, like I said, I, I, I was starting to recognize, look, I, I've, been, I've been going through my own deconstruction for the last 15 years. I've been writing books about my deconstruction and blogging about my deconstruction. I, I do this podcast, Heretic Happy Hour, which is really all about deconstruction. And, um, you know, there's Facebook groups I'm a part of that are all about deconstruction. And again, I think that's good. We, we do need to, we need to shine a light on the things that are broken and we need to give people safe places to rethink and, and deconstruct their faith. Absolutely. But what I, what, the more I'm doing this, the, and I have people coming to me, I, I mean, on a daily basis, Jason, I am not exaggerating. On a daily basis, I get messages and emails and comments from people saying, Keith, can I talk to you on the phone? Uh, or can we Skype? Or, oh, Keith, look, I, I've been a pastor for this many years. I've deconstructed my faith. I lost my job because I, I don't believe these things anymore. What do I do? There are so many people that are going through deconstruction they're in this place of desperation. And I, what I'm noticing is there's nothing. I mean, I can't find anything that is specifically targeted on that reconstruction piece that helps people through their deconstruction when they come to these places. You know, as I said, uh, when I was going through my own, Wendy was there for me, but many people don't have anyone to, you know, help, help me, you know, walk me through my deconstruction. How do I process these things? And then move them on to reconstruction. So I just really felt like, I really felt like God was saying, Keith, you know, you've been through this. You have you have some tools. You have some resources. Uh, and again, people are coming to me all the time anyway. I'm sort of doing this already uh, one, on a one-at-a-time one basis. Maybe I could put something together that would be more structured, that would be more long-term, that wouldn't just be a little email here and a phone call there. That would be like, hey, why don't we get like 12 people? We'll come together. We'll, we'll do like a 90, spend 90 days together. I'll put together a series of lectures where I kind of walk through these different elements that I'm talking about for deconstruction and, and, and reconstruction. We'll do that every week. And then we'll have some homework, some things to work on during the week. And then at the end of the week, we'll have like a, an hour long video conference call where I'll check on you guys, how you doing, some accountability and all right, how is this coming along? And uh, the goal being that over, over this 90 day period, at the end of that 90 day period, people that go through the square one program, they have handles, they know what to do. And again, this is not to create a dependence upon me. Please understand, my ultimate goal is to, to walk people through this program and so at the end of it, they have tools that on their own, they can process their deconstruction. They can begin their reconstruction process. They know how to begin sort to 
rewire their brains or create new perspectives on faith or create new faith practices and all these kind of deal with forgiveness and, and all those kinds of things. So that's the goal. And um, I've been, I'm excited about putting it together. I'm excited about getting it started. We're going to start September 30th. I'm still, I've got, I already have like five or six people who have signed up. We're still looking for a few more seats. I have a few available even at half price. So thanks to some generous donors. I'm just excited about offering something that I feel is so needed. And like I said, as far as I can tell, there's really nothing else out there available for people. Keith, I'm sure that there's some listeners who are hearing you talk about that right now thinking, that is exactly what I need. How can they get involved with Back to Square One? Yeah. So, well, I have set up a little page for this, um, for the course, and it's BK2SQ1. That's sort of the, it's supposed to be Back to Square One, but it's BK2, the number two, the numeral two. SQ and the numeral one.com. And so if you go to bk2sq1.com, uh, you'll see uh, there's a video there where I kind of explaining what this is all about. You can see what the course is going to cover. And if you're interested in one of those half price seats, you can, you can contact me or I can send you a link, Jason, and you can maybe share it. But um, absolutely. Yeah, there's a couple of those still left. Again, I, I'm just looking to help people and walking people through this. And my, my goal is this first time through is to just make sure this works, right? That the people really go through it. It really does help them. And I'm going to be tweaking and modifying as I go to make sure it's the best I can make it. And then my, then once we get it going through this first time, I'm going to continue to offer it you know, on a regular basis going forward. Awesome. Well, that's such a great resource, Keith. And I'm so grateful that you're offering that. And I'm excited about this uh, initial course launch, September 30th. Listeners, if you haven't read Keith's book, Jesus Unveiled, I want to highly recommend that you get that. We're going to link to it in the show notes. We'll also have the link to the course Back to Square One, where you can participate in the reconstruction course as well. Keith, what else do you have in the pipeline? You're like the most prolific author on the planet. Uh, You got six or seven more books coming out this year? Uh, Well, not this year, but very soon. (laughs) But yeah, I'm I'm kind of on a track right now where I think like every four or five months I have a book, uh, at least I'm planning to put a book out. So I have a book coming out. My next Jesus Un series book will be Jesus Undefeated. That'll be uh, the subtitle, I think, is going to be Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Suffering to Make the Gospel Great Again. Ooh, I love it. Yeah, Brad Jerzak wrote the forward to that. That's basically my book about, um, if you can tell from the subtitle, it's about hell, about um, the doctrines of hell, uh, universalism and eternal suffering and annihilation. And that'll be out November 9th. That's my birthday. And then I'm hoping actually to put out a book that will deal with this topic of like square one, will deal with the deconstruction to reconstruction process. So as as we're going through this 90-day program, I'm going to be trying to put the notes and everything into a book that I can make available hopefully early in 2020. So that'll kind of take a pause in the Jesus Unseries and, and that'll be coming out hopefully early early next year. And then I'm going to finish up the Jesus Unseries and I'm going to do a follow-up book. My goal is to have it out by July 4th. This will be a follow-up book to Jesus Untangled because the political situation has gotten even worse since I, I published that book. And um, that book will be called Jesus Un-American. So I'll make a lot of friends on that one. Ooh, wow. You're going to have a target on your back. <laughs> yeah. In an election year, too. Yeah, well, that's kind of why I felt the urgency to, to go in and get it out now. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm excited about all of that, and I can't wait to read uh, the future books, but also maybe have you back on to talk about them if you're willing to do that. Oh, anytime. Um, I'd love to continue this conversation. Where can our listeners engage with you and your work online? Yeah. So yeah, thanks. Um, Well, I have a blog, um, and it's just my name, KeithGiles.com, K-E-I-T-H-G-I-L-E-S.com. That actually goes to my Patheos blog. There's also the HereticHappyHour.com for the podcast. And then I'm on Facebook and Twitter, and I'm pretty active. So you can contact me there as well. 
Yeah. And then, like I said, back to square one, bk2sq1.com if you're interested in that. So friends, please take advantage of the resources that Keith puts out into the world. Uh, He is one of a very few people that I trust to not steer us wrong as we seek to follow Jesus directly without the mediators and the fillers of the modern church era. Keith, thank you so much for your time today. I love you, brother, and I look forward to continuing this conversation in the future. I love you so much, Jason. Thank you. It's been an honor and, and and a blessing. Thanks. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.